Oh my god, uh, sorry. Where are this is not hospitality. Where are the big words we are so grateful to have? We don't really deserve him, but in his magnanimity here okay. Thanks very much. Uh, I hope all this technology works. Just three introductory points. First I really mean it, but I don't know how to say that it will not be a denegation, you know, or whatever. I really like it. To be here, I feel at home definitely more than in my own country, among you here. Second point. Uh, 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 I... Uh, what I... I'm just sorry, I want to apologize due to my health state and so on, and I really mean it, that I wasn't able to socialize more. But believe me, when you get heavy diabetes, heart palpitation and so on, all those things combining, well, it's not so nice to be alive. The third point, uh, I want to do something because Todd, told me that, oh, you can do as much pure theory as you want, so I made a step to that direction, so I hope you will not be too disappointed, it, it will not be too much of those political LGBT provocations or whatever. I mean, let's have some theory. We have time. I'm open to all these questions, like, was I really for Trump? My God, be serious. I just maybe in the wrong way thought, hoped that when you have figure as a figure like Donald Trump as a leader that it will trigger, it will be in a good sense, not in a politically correct sense, a trigger warning, you know. <laughs> Obviously, even that doesn't work. So, uh, uh, we can all debate all this, but what I like, would like to do, and it's important, I think, is that maybe you noticed it, but the 70s, 80s, 90s, later, were more an era of deconstruction, which I read it as the ultimate stage of transcendental approach, in the sense that you don't ask direct ontological questions. Like, sorry, I have to, I'm a spontaneous racist, I have to pick up someone. Like, you know, when somebody asks me, who is that? I am not allowed to say, well, this is Henry from California or whatever. You, the question, the way to say is, and in what discursive regime, regime can we talk about him? You know, like, all questions are reduced to these questions of, to put it in Michel Foucault's terms, to what episteme they belong, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, I, I mean, there were tremendous positive results of this, but it means, again, the total annihilation, the so-called ontological dimension in the radical sense dis dis uh, disappears. For example, <coughs> In this approach, when I ask you, do you think that we have an immortal soul or not? The answer would have been, in what discursive field can you even debate about this? 
You know, it, and the ultimate, he was aware of it. The ultimate thinker in this direction was, of course, Heidegger. What he means by disclosure of being is simply the historically conditioned, of course, transcendental horizon within which we talk about objects. So his point about science is that our scientific attitude towards the world is overdetermined, whichever term we use, by a certain historically determined ontological horizon. But, and you find all this in my books, even throughout his life, Heidegger gave hints that something is missing, that that's not all. From his early to his late writing, he says, but, for example, this is a stone which, within certain uh, historical horizon disclosure of being, it appears to me as a stone but what is the stone in the, but nonetheless Heidegger was not a naive subjectivist he was well aware that uh, this historical disclosure of being is just an open space opening where objects processes appear it's not a process of ontic creation what what Heidegger calls Lichtung uh, or Sein being is not ontic causality. Sein does not, being does not cause entities. So what, what is then the status of entities outside of this ontological horizon? And he himself admits this is a mystery. I haven't yet confronted it properly. And I think that today, we should risk this. That's why I am, I now wrote even a text, a benevolently polemical text about uh, object-oriented ontology, because I think they are giving, for me at least, I'm sorry, the wrong answers, but two questions that we should confront. And I will try to make a kind of a pre some pre preliminary steps into this direction. Today, uh, I, Lacan, as we all know, often, Jacques Lacan often refers to three of these topological models that you see behind my back. Medius strip, cross cap, and the Klein bottle. So, I want to take this as a starting point, and you will see, I hope you will be a little bit surprised where it will take us. On the top, maybe strip is a surface with only one side when embedded in three-dimensional Euclidean space, and only one boundary, which has the mathematical property of being unorientable. An example, it's easy to create a Mabius strip. You take a paper strip, give it, give it a half twist, sorry, and then you join the ends of the strip to form a loop. So a line starting from the seam down the middle meets back at the seam, but on the other side, and so on. You know. Then the middle one, it's much more interesting already, cross cap is a continuously deformed Mabius strip, a two-dimensional surface in a three-dimensional space that intersects itself in an interval. The inverse image of this interval is a longer interval that the mapping into three-dimensional space folds in half. 
again you have it in the middle, then two cross caps glued together at their boundaries form what you have there on the bottom, a model of Klein bottle, this time with two intervals of self-intersection. Klein bottle is also a non-orientable surface, which means a two-dimensional manifold against which a system for determining a normal vector cannot be consistently defined. It's Again, plain bottle, a one-sided surface which, if traveled upon, could be followed back to the point of origin. So, what's my aim here? My aim is to show, or at least indicate, that this triad echoes the Hegelian triad of being essence notion. The Mabius strip stands for the basic dynamics of the order of being, for what was traditionally called the dialectical coincidence of the opposites. Brought to its extreme, a feature passes into its opposite. Being as such turns out to be nothing, radical freedom turns out to be self-destructive terror, love brought to extreme turns into hatred, necessity reveals itself to be the highest contingency, and so on and so on. There is here no proper difference or identity, just the continuous passage of one feature into its opposite. Difference only appears when, in a redoubled Mebius track, which gives us a cross cap, the continuous process of passage is interrupted by a cut. Through this redoubling of the Mebius strip, the opposite poles do not pass into another, but are deprived of any shared space, which would enable us to determine their difference as such. The effort of thinking is here to mediate the two opposite poles by way of determining their difference, but this effort fails again and again. Identity and difference, essence and appearance, cause and effect, substance and its accidents are all the time reflected into each other, and what eludes this reflexive mediation is not some deeper identity of the opposites, but their difference as such. So, brought to its end, the logic of reflection confronts us with the paradox of pure difference, in the sense of a difference which is not a difference between two established entities, but a difference which precedes the two terms it differentiates. For example, from the Lacanian standpoint, sexual difference is not the difference between the two sexes, but the name of a deadlock which every sexual position try to stabilize. Or, in Marxism, class struggle is not a struggle between pre-existing social groups, but the name of a social antagonism in reaction to which every class position emerges. What this means is that there is no shared common space between the two sexes or classes, what they share, what holds the social space or the space of sexuality together is ultimately antagonism itself. The image of cross cap, in the middle you can see it behind my back, renders this key feature in a nice 
imaginative way. The overall first impression is that of an organic rounded whole, like a harmonious social body. But upon a closer look, you can quickly see, perceive cracks, disharmonies in this whole. The horizontal lines of the two halves do not fit, which means we are dealing with a patched up composite, so that the rounded body looks more like a freakish montage. Uh, to get a plastic image of such redoubled manuscript, I want to shock you, maybe, but nobody is shocked today, by uh, mentioning one of the novels that I don't really like, but the basic idea I find attractive. Stephen King's series of novels, The Dark Tower. Why? I find it attractive because it relies on a beautifully naive vision of what Lacan calls Juan de Capitone, the quilting point. A mysterious black tower which sutures our reality and thereby holds it together. If this tower is destroyed, our reality will disintegrate, fall apart, and we would be reduced to a barbaric universe of dark violence. But uh, what is uh, crucial in Stephen King's vision is that it's not only our reality, and there we have the two sides, our reality is redoubled. Uh, in the film version, you must have seen it, it opened up recently. The film version, it uh, simplifies novels a little bit, it takes place in both modern-day New York City and in so-called mid-world, an old uh, West-style parallel universe which stands for the barbaric universe of violence. And so, uh, <coughs> sorry, that's the idea. Two universes like two manuscripts, uh, they are uh, held together precisely by something like Dark Tower, which is, I think, a naive image of, again, what Lacan calls the quilting point, Juan de Capitone, and uh, this is the function of suturing. And to get an idea of why cross-cap? I think I would like to delve a little bit with what I already developed in some of my books, with the complexity of the notion of future. This complexity is lost in the predominant use of the term, where suture concerns the relationship between the closed circle of ideological representation and its external site of production. The idea of future is that in order to close the circle of representation, there has to be in it a symptomal element which sutures the field of representations insofar as it functions as a stand-in for the excluded outside. It is an element which, within the space of representation, holds the place of the excluded external production. However, this notion of future, materialist as it may appear to be, has to be supplemented by its opposite. The external reality, in order to attain its full existence, has to be supplemented, sutured by a subjective 
element. And you know, it's crucial to maintain this, not ambiguity in some sense of vagueness, but these two aspects. Again, at least when I was young, when the theory of future was popular, it was read interpreted almost exclusively in the first sense. The idea, the idea was that uh, we live in our idealized world of representations, which are just a theater of shadow, which mirrors actual site of production. But this mirroring is never perfect, so there has to be a suturing element something which appears as one representation, but it really holds the place within the space of representations of each outside. Okay, I used in my books all the time repeatedly the same examples, so why not to repeat them one time more? For example, it's my reading that, even a little bit of critique of Marx, that in Marxism, I tend to agree with those who claim that the Marxist, or rather Marxist of Marx, because it was never part of Marxism, notion of so-called Asiatic mode of representation is such a suturing element. If you look at it superficially, it's just one in the line of modes of production. We have so-called primitive, pre-class, pre-state societies, then we have Asiatic mode of production, then we have ancient Greek slave societies, feudal societies, uh, capitalist societies, and whatever will come afterwards. No? Maybe communism, but maybe communism will not be as nice as people expect, whatever. But uh, I think that the hidden logic is this one. I try to be here at a very elementary level. Marx originally, as it's clear, only enumerated five uh, stages. So-called primitive, pre-class societies, ancient slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and let's not go into all that, social communism, whatever you call it. Then he discovered that there are many modes of production, or rather social orders, which do not fit any of these five. And I claim it can be proven, of course I will not do it now, that the Asiatic mode of production, although it appears to be one among the others, its only actual theoretical meaning is like that joke from Borges quoted by Foucault, you know, a special category of dogs, all dogs who do not belong to this list. It simply means all social orders which do not fit any of my modes of production. It's just a negative container. But it is needed as a pseudo-element because it sutures the space of representations. And, okay, I will not lose time here. My, this appears to be the materialist logic. The actual productive reality is outside. It just sutured in the theater of shadows and so on. <laughs> Sorry, it's always represented in a limited way. And it's interesting. My good friend, whom I envy, she will be the next big name, really big, bigger than me, I predict, Alenka Zupancic, she developed nicely how in, uh, how precisely in the post-Hegelian universe, 
this became a big topic the imperfection of every representation at all levels like can political representation really cover society or is there always some excess which cannot be properly represented or even marriage and love sexual love can marriage or any other sexual or any other socially regulated form of sexuality can it cover the field of actual sexuality and so on and so on so again this sounds materialist but i think it's absolutely crucial to also include the opposite logic it's not only no interior without exterior that is to say to close to suture the circle of interior representation you need a suturing element this pseudo element which is i'm ashamed of using this old structuralist jargon which is the placeholder of a lack of what is excluded and so on uh, it's part of true materialism for me paradoxically although it will sound uh, subjectivist to include also the opposite no exterior without interior that's for example the lesson of immanuel kant to build out of the confusion of subjective impressions to construct out of it the image of external reality we need to add what precisely a subjective gesture you have to add something to obtain out of confused preontological real let's call it reality reality that we know as existing really out there you need a subjective supplement or objective reality only exists through this subjective addition okay i will not go into it in detail because i have here i just i hope i can share you with, with you all this what i'm working now a wonderful book will appear relatively soon by mit press uh, written together by my good german friend frank ruda and rebecca comey on dash dash like the sign which occurs at two crucial places in hegel's phenomenal uh, in hegel's work dash you find it at the very end before that quote from schiller concluding paragraph of phenomenology and at the very beginning of hegel's logic and the idea i think this part was written by frank ruga is that hegel hey, hegel basically wrote only two books phenomenology and logic okay he wrote some early stuff which are not proper books and then his two systematic works encyclopedia and philosophy of right but they are not really books they are pure university discourse they are manuals written in the legal way manuals for university courses but uh, what frank ruda demonstrates in a wonderful way is how elusive impossible to determine the difference between the two this would be another cross cap if you want they don't really fit together you cannot bring them together all attempts to construct some harmonious whole like first hegel elaborated concrete historical context in phenomenology then he moved to its logical structure in his logic they all fail but uh, uh, 
I think, okay, uh, of course, one can say a lot here about class struggle, and if you allow me just to improvise a little bit, I forgot there are too many in which of my books, but I was proud of that discovery. I didn't invent it, of how objective reality needs a subjective supplement. I forgot where, maybe, doesn't matter. Uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the most tragic, maybe, period of Soviet Union, the late 20s, early 30s, the collectivization of agriculture, you know, the official formula was decolacization, liquidate the kulaks, the rich farmers. The problem is then how to categorize them socially. You know, they tried to establish objective criteria, like at the beginning it was, I don't know, if you employ other farmers to work for you, and if you have more than, they even tried to quantify 10 cows or whatever, you know how much field, you are a kulak. If you have just a big farm without employing, you are a half kulak or whatever. But then it never functioned. And at the end, they introduced a category of sub, sub like subconscious, sub-kulak. And although they tried to define it as an objective social category, it's clear from how it functions that it was really those who, although they are not in any objective sense kulaks, are suspected of having the subjective attitude of kulaks. You, you know, here you have an objective social categorization where you have to include into it as just another objective element. We have large kulak, small kulak, and then we have this mysterious sub-kulak. But it's just an objectivization of a, of a subjective stance. But, okay, let's not lose time, let's go on. Uh, now, things get really interesting when we raise the question, how do we pass from <coughs> cross-cap to Klein-bottle? I think the first thing to do is to realize the radical asymmetry of the two poles. There are not two, as it still appears within the model of cross-cap. There is only one and its remainder or excess, the mark of its impossibility. In short, the difference is not between the two ones, one and the other. There is only the one, but this one is but impossible, the one and its difference. Let me take the perhaps unexpected case of sexual difference. This was already mentioned, I will now like I would now like to elaborate a little bit more yesterday in the debate at the first session. To resolve the problem of exhaustive classification that would have listed all sexual positions so that nobody would be left out or rather left behind, and incidentally, I'm so sorry, I hope you don't mind these improvisations, how, you know, as an old Marxist, I like to read theology, but in this Protestant capitalist view, how, if you really want to hear what capital or market is saying, you should look at what God is saying, you know. Like, did you notice this strange phenomenon? In the last decades, the popularity of the religious topic of left behind. You know, you have 
your greatest American writers. I'm ashamed to mention them. How are they called? Those total creeps. Tim Lahai, or you know that series left behind. Those people dear to God before Armageddon, they are taken in a rapture and we are, majority, are left behind to suffer uh, the horrors of Armageddon. Uh, but, but you have also, how is the series called now? Uh, leftovers or Remainders? Which is much more sympathetic and serious. But, okay, why this obsession with left behind? I will propose here, I'm ashamed almost of it, an extremely vulgar economist reading. God, as usual here, with the logic of left behind, listens carefully to the voice of the market, of big capital, because isn't the big discovery lately that it's becoming more and more clear that with uh, robotization, digitalization, and so on, most of us working force will be soon left behind. The model that is emerging is, okay, it's not as big God, where usually just 2-3% are taken and 95% are left behind. The idea is that like 80% of us are left behind. And I think this would be one way to read uh, what is also false in some of the leftist politics. For example, in Europe, I'm getting tired on this focus on refugees, we should take care of them, of course we should. But are we aware, I read very good analysis that those refugees who reach Europe are as a rule the privileged refugees, those who can afford it to be blackmailed by, by, by criminals who organize illegal transports, tremendous amounts of money, and they are the privileged one. I mean, I say stop talking about refugees who are already halfway out and focus on those left behind. What interests me is those who are still in Syria, in Afghanistan, I don't know where, and so on, and so on. And, um, uh, uh, so, uh, okay, uh, let's go on so that I don't get uh, lost here. So, again, what does this mean? Yes, sexual difference uh, and uh, all these sexual positions, and we already mentioned this yesterday morning, you know how? This designation, which is, I think, the usual LGBTQ+. Now, there are some debates. Do you leave out Q? Do you add even more? But the point is this plus, which serves to include all those left out. It's a kind of a nominalist, empiricist modesty. Our classification is never exclusive, and to be open to new discoveries and so on, we have to include all those who are not yet included. But uh, this, however, raises the question, is plus in LGBTQ+, just a stand-in for the missing positions, like, does it just mean and others, or can, can one be directly a plus? The properly dialectical answer is yes. In the series, there is always one exceptional element, again, I'm back to the manuscript, which clearly does not belong to the series, and thereby it gives body to plus. In the case of LGBT lists, I noticed that I read carefully those classifications, like some authority in New York, city of New York, 
proposed a list of 32 categories, and then you are free to choose your identity there. Uh, I, I, I saw there at least three categories which are standing for plus. First, you have allies. It's really like soup collapse. Why? Because you learn that allies are honest, non-LGBT individuals. Like, allies are defined as those who in their sexual or, or orientation are heterosexual, standard, but they have a sympathy towards us, and so on and so on. It's, again, it's, 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 it's subkulak. That is to say that they cheat. They include into a series a subjective determination which has nothing to do with sexuality. Then, asexuals is always listed as a category. Those who negate the entire field of sexuality. There is a group which claims, usually in, with some of this post-human ideology behind, that the future will be asexual and sexuality will disappear. It will make our society less envious, much more harmonious and so on. Then, another category that is listed is questioning. Questioning as an identity, uh, you have men, women, lesbians, bisexual, and then you have questioning. It simply means floating around, unable to adopt a determinant position. Now, from the Lacanian standpoint, we should pass from X, so sorry, from plus, as the sign of an infinite ethical task, like that's how it's usually. Plus means our work is never done. Be careful. Every, every classification, every list is still oppressive. Maybe some are excluded and so on. Uh, to the ontological deadlock. I mean, uh, and here I see the subversion of LGBT. I think that instead of treating them as another positive entity, and then you say, okay, let's expand the list and everybody will be satisfied. But what if they are the plus embodied? That's the greatest praise I can think about them. What if they embody this floating around, unable to find a determinate position, and so on and so on? Or to go even to the end, and I refer here to Alenka Zupancic, I think she develops this in her new book, What is Sex? Incidentally, it's a stupid title imposed on her by MIT Press. Uh, for her, the minimal formula of sexual difference is not MF, masculine, feminine. It's not only also MF and some plus, like, you know, we don't all fit it and so on, but it's M plus. Women, femininity as such is plus. Masculine, phallic identity plus something to be added. Femininity is not another identity, a counterposition to complement the masculine position, but it's impossible supplement. This failure of classification, so that you don't get clear categories, but a disturbing plus, this classification is sexuality. So it is not enough to say that sexual classification always fails. This failure of identity is constitutive of sexuality. 
So again, to defend, I don't like this patronizing word, uh, the, uh, uh, the most radical uh, transgender uh, position, I'm not saying in this liberal way, yes, we heterosexuals do not have the full right, they should also be admitted. No, in some way, they are more sexualized than we are. They are sexuality, even paradoxically sexual difference, uh, as it at its purest. This, of course, in no way implies that women are somehow less than men. Just an enigmatic addendum to male identity. Quite on the contrary, plus stands for subjectivity itself as the questioning of every identity. This is my, it's my old thesis, subjectivity as such is feminine hysterical. The basic formula of hysterical questioning is the doubt about my identity. And in here I, I've written about it just to remind you, here I think that we should, uh, we should reject one of the bad legacies of 68. I'm sorry to tell you I'm old enough to remember it, where the idea was this one, and it was secretly strongly anti-feminist, because usually hysterics are associated with femininity. The idea was that hyster hysterical position is that of just provoking the master, you know, and really it, it conceals a demand for a more authentic, strong master, while perverts are the true revolutionaries. Or, as even Freud somewhere says in a wrong way, I think that uh, perverts actually do what hysterics only dream about. Lacan, that goes to his profit, and even feminist profit, radically opposes this version. For him, yes, perversion is predominantly masculine. There is even a great debate in psychoanalysis in what specific sense we can talk about uh, feminine perversion. But uh, for Lacan, perversion, and this is so important today in our freakish time when all this perverted, hidden, obscene underside is becoming public in our political discourse. Perversion is the necessary dark side, obverse side of power structure. Lacan says every political power structure needs a pervert to be its instrument. And it's hysteria, not perversion, which is the radical questioning. Which is why, and this was developed by my other good friend, Mladen Dolar, already 30 years ago, in a wonderful text called Beyond Interpolation. This is why, exaggerating a little bit, and insofar as we accept loyalty shares idea of ideological interpolation as constitutive of ideological subjectivity, like I become ideological subject by way of accepting identity conferred to me by the social big other, you know. Society tells me, I don't know if you're a woman, you are a woman, you are a mother, you are a scientist, you are whatever. But the large beautiful idea is that if interpolation is this basic ideological identification, then hysteria already in its form is the most elementary gesture of the critique of ideology. It's you, the big other, are telling me, I am, of course, in your a mother, a wife, mistress, but 
this is the big hysterical question. Why am I what you are telling me that I am? This self-doubt. And it's also important to see the whole Lacanian background of this. Uh, uh, you know, I, I get almost a Joseph Goebbels reaction of pulling my gun and start shooting when Lacan's notion of lost object of desire is read as this stupid metonymy, romantic, oh, we always miss the, the object, object is always alluding us, it's some impossible incestuous object. No, as it is clear with Lacan, already in early Lacan, Seminar on Psychosis, uh, the original lost object, it's me, the subject myself as object. The original question of desire is not this boring romantic metonymy. I want you, but what if I really want something else and you are just a standing and so on? No, the original scene of desire is already as a small baby. I see that I'm something for, for the others. Parents, brothers, sisters play their libidinal games with me, but it's never clear to me what am I for the others. It's this original questioning, and that's why for me perverts are the bad guys, because pervert is exactly the one who doesn't question but he knows. A pervert knows what he is for the other, an instrument of it's the other's enjoyment and so on and so on. Okay. Uh, uh, one can also, to refer back to yesterday's debate, one can also make uh, the same point in terms of nominalism versus realism. From the nominalist perspective, as we said yesterday, I just recapitulated, plus is a sign of the excess of reality which we cannot ever fully grasp with our conceptual frame. It's this boring empiricist motive, you know. Ooh, reality is always more rich uh, than our categorical apparatus, and so on and so on. Uh, so, plus, in this sense, signals that our classification will never be complete, that something will always elude it. So, we should be aware of this and keep our mind open for new entities, properties, and so on. Again, as it was made clear yesterday in the debate with Todd McGovern and others, there is no universality per se for this view. There, is, there are only always incomplete lists of particulars. And here, politically, as it was already said yesterday, and I want to supplement it, this, uh, this is clear because uh, this is also how the vulgar Marxist I think pseudo-Marxist historicization works, you know, in our predominantly nominalist times. This is how I would like to write it, but I'm too stupid, too old. Uh, many people wrote it, Schopenhauer among the philosophers, a manual, manual of how to win every debate. You know, that even when you are... And I think one of the rules is always... I debate something and I'm losing the argument, the nominalist escape. Like, let's say I debate femininity, I'm losing. There is always a safe way to say, but what woman are you talking about? There is no woman as such. There are only black, lesbian, hetero women, and so on and so on. It's an, it's, it's an easy way out. Or, to put it in more correct Marxist terms, the idea is 
who always find a particular bias, spin, of every universality. You know the story, like human rights, yeah, but do, do they not secretly, or even not so secretly, privilege, you know, the usual list, white males of certain property, education, and so on and so on. Okay, we should do this. There is an element in this. Although already here, to repeat what was said yesterday, uh, uh, the role of this empty universality is much more ambiguous. It's not just an ideological form that justifies oppression, like we pretend to be universalists, uh, uh, human rights, but secretly we privilege some of them. You should never forget that from the very beginning, the universal form gained a certain autonomy and opened up the space for an explosion. First, women, who were clearly disprivileged, but Mary Wollstonecraft and so on, you remember, like, why not we also, if the form is universal? Then, the biggest, maybe, I think, one of definitely two, three biggest events in the last maybe 1,000 years, the Haiti Revolution, where blacks in Haiti simply said, it was an incredible event, like, we are also, we don't want any, to put it ironically, what Haiti blacks were saying is, thanks for Alexis Haley roots and that Hollywood production, no, we don't want to go back and search for our roots, we want to be not only part of the same universality as you French are, we want to correct you and be more universal than you are. But this is not all. Uh, uh, Marx is well aware that universality is not just cannot be reduced to this nominalist perspective. It's all, always historicized, specific, overdetermined by some specific context. It's also part of our actuality. The point of Marx is that capitalism in this sense is universal. It's actually universal. Let's say I am a merchant from China, you're a merchant from Latin America. Of course, we can say we never really understand each other, uh, each of us has its own uh, cultural horizon, but from the capitalist standpoint, it doesn't matter. The universal form of commodities is operative there. So, for Marx, this is the other side of his historicizing. Capitalism is a social formation where abstract universality is a fact of actual life. To be a modern capitalist subject means that you treat yourself as universal, not determined by any particular form, and so on, and so on, uh, and so on. So again, to go on, that's the nominalist view. In the terms of transgenderism, we should just arrive to establish again a list of all sexual identities with the awareness that something will always elude us. From the Hegelian realist perspective, on the contrary, the point is not that through the notion's self-articulation we can establish a complete list of particular species. Plus, 
the marker of what is left out, it's not just a sign of our epistemological limitation, but a positive entity in itself, an entity which gives body to the negativity that characterizes every universality. So that's the beauty of it. I don't have time to go into it in detail, but it was again hinted yesterday, the first debate, that uh, universality is uh, universality is actualizes itself in this plus. It's not that we have that we who have our position in a normative structure, for example, in the patriarchal society, we who are fully in the, in the normative way, uh, 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 men, women, that we have our post, but the plus is just some obscure remainders. No, the plus, they are embodied universality. In the same way that for Marx, for example, proletarians as those with no proper place within the social edifice are the embodiment of the universality. Or even for Hegel, but it's a more complex story, that what he calls rebel, pebel, the outcasts, they are universality, they are universality embodied. What this means, again, is that humanity is not a genus with two species, men and women, or them. We can add other species. Sexual difference is uh, a difference between man as a species of a genus, humanity, and woman as a plus, the element which stands for the universality of being human. So we should here turn around the standard uh, male chauvinist uh, uh, anthropology where men are perceived to be more universal and women introduce the element of particularity. No, men stand for particularity. Men, you know, like human genus has two species, man as a species and woman as the out-of-place element which stands for its universality. Okay, enough of abstract philosophizing. Now we come to something that I hope will be a little bit more amusing, which is... So how do we come from all this? These were still the contradictions, tensions, antagonisms of cross-cut to Klein bottle. Uh, here I hope I will surprise you a little bit. I would like to begin in a big philosophical way. If there is a doxa of 20th century philosophy, it is a kind of, it is the position defined by Heidegger's notion from his being and time of Interweltsein, being in the world. It goes like this, that the big mistake of modern metaphysics of subjectivity is that it posits a gap. Here am I with my representations, out there is reality. And then the big problem emerges, how can I break the circle of my representations and get in touch with reality out there. Can I do it at all or are we condemned to Berkeley, the Irish bishop, Berkeley type of solipsism? All I have are my representations. Uh, uh, 
uh, Heidegger's answer, well-known answer, is that this very question is a false question, it's a scandal. Because it first creates a gap between me, my representations, and actuality. It creates a pseudo-problem, and then it spends all its energy trying to cover up the gap. Uh, Heidegger's answer, as you know, is that uh, we should abandon the whole image of myself with my mental insight of representations and external reality outside. I am from the very beginning outside myself in the world. I think that we should nonetheless abandon this idea. Uh, not totally, it makes a point, there is no inner self, but that in some sense we should shamelessly assert that we do live in a closed universe like prisoners of Plato's cave. My idea is to rehabilitate from a materialist standpoint or retell the story of Plato's cave and to do it, I think we can do it precisely with reference to the model of Klein Bottle. I will just, I hope this all works, explain what's my idea. The outside on the top is, let's call it the preontological real in quantum physics, quantum waves, whatever you want. You fall in the abyss of void inconsistency and then this is subject, and we as constituted subjects are here. This is, when we are in here, we look up and the same curved space from inside, this is Plato's cave. The problem is that there is that, I call it snout or whatever, that strange tube, but it's the blind spot. We don't see it. That that's our position. What do I mean by this? Now I will do, if you are religious, pray with me so that this will function. Because I, ah, ho, let's hope. Uh, now I will first, to make this clear, I will uh, show you the uh, <coughs> The uh, uh, brief, uh, it's with some stupid music, I'm so afraid. Uh, I'm ashamed, sorry. How Klein Bottle is formed.
came and said, I know what this is. I'm sorry for trigger warning if you are too sensitive. But it's a guy with such a long penis that he can twist it and fuck himself anally. You know, that was his... You know, there is some... Admit it, there is something really dirty going on here. Okay, uh, uh, sorry, yes, uh, no, sorry, sorry, sorry. I have to, uh, you see, now things are happening, which I will try to, uh, 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 I think I, I did it. Uh, 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 is it this one or what? Oh, uh, Ah, no, sorry, I got it, I got it, I got it, this is, okay, okay, so, uh, 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 so again, we are inside, and this is not an idealist perspective, because the point is just the same point which was made wonderfully quantum physics by Niels Bohr, that to be true materialists, we should not ask ourselves if you are inside the bottle, but can we reach reality what is outside? The question is that now, that obscene protuberance, like how do I fit reality? The whole, the whole image together is part of reality. So let me elaborate this a little bit. Our universe of ideological meaning is closed. We are within that circle. But uh, it's not closed in this modern solipsist way. My answer would be that, of course, we are in the world. But what is closed and closed is we and our world. This is the closed circular space. Uh, uh, so I want now to make this clear to mention two cases of crazy ideology, or even three cases of crazy ideology, which, that is to say, line of thought which is madness from the modern uh, biological evolutionary or whatever standpoint, but it makes deep sense as a theory of ideology following this model. First one is, do you remember that uh, in, uh, medieval usually paintings where you, uh, our stars and so on, the universe is interpreted as a big cupola. And then the painting goes like somebody arrives to the edge and breaks through and sees, I mean, of course, this is not how our real universe is built, but this is definitely how our ideology is done. We do live in Truman's show world, ideologically. Uh, uh, or to give you another example of this, my favorite one, which I mentioned a couple of times in my books, I forgot the name, some English bishop who was friend of Darwin. Stephen Jay Gould wrote about it. He had a problem. He was a good biologist, and he saw that Darwin is right. So his problem was how to unite this with the fact that if you take the Bible literally, the world should be created 4,000 and something years ago and so on. And he provided, I'm sorry if I'm too repetitive, you must know it, an ingenious solution, which is that 
Of course, the Bible cannot be wrong. The world was created 4,000-something years ago, and I don't know which one was it. No, earlier some guy, even did, I love the British man here, British, uh, did say this in the typical British empiricist way, that at 9.30 in the morning in year minus 4,025, God created the world. I like this idea, like, after having a good English breakfast and so on, then he... But, uh, so you know what the solution? That God directly created fossils and so on to give us a false sense of opening. Now, of course, I don't buy this as cosmological theory, but I do buy it as the best theory of ideology. Sorry. I think this is how ideology always works. Creating its own past and wants, you know, uh, since you, Henry, know your uncle or who creates classical music, the last news, it amused me so much, do you know that now I read an analysis that, you know, our representation of Vikings, those uh, helmets with horns, you know that they never, never found any of them. They were not stupid. It would have been extremely unpractical. It was invented for the staging of early Wagner's operas. <laughs> Nothing to do with Vikings, but today everybody assumes that they had this extremely unpractical, stupid, whatever. So what I'm... Okay, I will not even lose words here, but I want to do something. Now comes the, I hope, more amusing, but very problematic part for some of you, concluding part. First, I will refer here to my good friend Frank Ruda, who now wrote a short text, it will take time before it will be published, but it's a wonderful text on also rehabilitating Plato's cave as a theory of ideology, but she does something wonderful here. She focuses on an aspect which is totally neglected in usual readings of Plato, because, you know, people are afraid of it, like it's too authoritarian, and so on, and so on. Namely, Plato does not say that we are caught, this is the usual image, we are, we, the ordinary people who only observe on the wall the spectacle of theater of shadows, that we are there chained and cannot live. Plato makes it clear that even if we get rid of our chains, we would not want to be free. And Plato was the first to formulate this wonderful paradox. We have, in some sense, to be forced to be free. Here is, if you permit me, some quotes from Ruda. The exit from the cave begins when one of the prisoners is not only freed from his chains, but when he is forced out, this clearly must be the place for the libidinal, but also epistemological, political, and ontological function of the master. This can only be a master who does neither tell me what precisely to do, nor one whose instrument I could become, but he must be this good master, the one who just gives me back to myself, and in a sense, 
one might say this could be connected to Plato's anamnesis theory, remembering what one never knew as it were. And it implies that the proper master just affirms or makes it possible for me to affirm that I can do this, without telling me what this is and thus without telling me who I am. End of quote. The point Ruda makes here is a subtle one. It's not only that. If I am left to myself in the cave, even if without chains, I prefer to stay there so that a master has to force me out. But in a much more subtle way, I have to volunteer to be forced out. Similarly to the way in which when a subject enters psychoanalysis, she volunteers to do it. She voluntarily accepts the psychoanalyst as some kind, I know it's not the discourse of the master, his master. Another quote from Ruda. A question arises at precisely this point from using the reference to the master in psychoanalytic term. Does this mean that those who need the master are always already in the position of the analyzant, patient? If politically such a master is needed to become who one is, and this can be structurally linked to liberating the prisoner from the cave, to forcing him out after the chains are taken off and he still does not want to leave, the question arises how to link this with the idea that the patient, analysant, must per definition be a volunteer, not simply slave or bondsman. Psychoanalysis only works when you demand it, when you volunteer to go to make an analysis. So in short, there must be a dialectics of master and volunteers here. A dialectics because the master to some extent constitutes volunteers as volunteers, liberates them from previously seemingly unquestionable position. So, end of quote. But what further complicates the picture is that capitalism, well, again, the last one from Ruda, relies massively on unpaid and thereby structurally voluntary labor. One has to distinguish not only between different types of master figures, the standard master who knows better than you what you want, orders you to do it, and this more subtle liberating master, a master whose function is only to, as it were, to bring out in you what you are able to do. His message is not do this, but you can do it, and it's up to you to choose it. Not only with different, but also between different types of volunteers. Uh, and end of quote. So here to conclude, I would like to say this that. Uh, I would like just very briefly, because I would like then to conclude with two clips from movies, to uh, point out how uh, we have two types, two levels of servitude voluntaire, of voluntary uh, servitude. Uh, first, we have this, let's call it authentic submission serving, uh, liberating master, and servitude voluntaire with regard to market mechanisms. 
In capitalist servitude, we simply feel free, while in authentic liberation, we accept voluntarily servitude as serving a cause and not just serving ourselves. In today's cynical functioning of capitalism, I can know very well what I'm doing and I continue to do it. Here, the liberating aspect of my knowledge is suspended. While in the authentic dialectics of liberation, the awareness of my situation is already the first step of liberation. In other words, in capitalism, I am enslaved precisely when I feel free, because this feeling is the very form of my servitude. I mean, to give you a simple example today, when the situation gets worse for ordinary people, at least in Europe, uh, welfare state is disappearing, uh, you have to, you get only, uh, as a precarious worker, you get short-term contract, you have to provide yourself health insurance. Here comes ideology and tells you, but this is wonderful, it's a new freedom. You can choose, you, you are... The term is self-entrepreneur. Even if you are a beggar, you are a self-entrepreneur. Like you steal from someone $1,000, and then you can choose. Will you take a holiday? Will you invest in your health care or whatever? So my point is that here, our very feeling free as a subject of choice is the form of our servitude to the logic of capital. Why? In the liberating servitude volontaire, our, my realization that I am serving, enslaved to my unconscious, to whomever, is the first act of freedom. And here I nonetheless agree with Judith Butler, with all my disagreements with her, who said that the first step of feminism, before you even liberate yourself, you must recognize yourself as your servitude. Which is why she made a wonderful proposal that the first stage of feminism should always be, and it's a wonderful dialectical moment, uh, to sabotage, because we live in liberal times, so even if you still have, a, as a woman, a masculine master, they like to play the liberal game, you know. I'm just taking care of you, we are equal, let's debate it, and so on and so on. And I love this idea of Judith, that the first step should be of a woman, no, please, I'm your servant, give me clear answers, orders. Don't bullshit me about we are equal, we have a dialogue, and so on and so on. Why does this work? Because in today's ideological constellation, a master cannot do this. It's almost discursively impossible, more or less, to do it directly. So uh, the point is that a subjective experience of I am free is the very form of servitude, and the subjective experience of I am a slave it means, for me, in order to say this, I'm in some sense already free. So, in this confused situation, now, if you allow me another, just not more than 10 minutes, how can we act freely? Ah, now comes my uh, favorite part. Let me... Uh, 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 sorry. Uh, aha. 
let me show you two movie clips. The first one is, you probably didn't see it, it's from a Danish noir, I use this often, I'm sorry if some of you know it, A Conspiracy of Faith. It's, the hero is, uh, he, uh, uh, he designates himself as terminally depressed detective. Karl Mork, a burnt out, depressed detective, basically an honest uh, guy, and his counterpoint is Johannes, a handsome blonde serial killer of children, who is interested not only in killing the children, but in destroying their parents' faith, religious faith. So I want to show you some four minutes long the final confrontation of the two in a lone wooden sea cottage where Johannes holds in chain as his prisoners, Mork, the detective, and two kidnapped children, a boy and a girl. Now let's do this. If you, uh, it will be in Danish, but it will be somewhere. Sorry, I will take this a little bit. Yes, what brings you?
Det har ingenting med barn å gjøre. Jeg forstår at det kan virke sånn, men det har det ikke. Jeg har funnet den reneste måten å tjene hans endelige mål. Ferdig med det. Vi skal vinne over Gud. Vi etter troen fra de som tror. Først fra etter barna, fra foreldrene, familien. Alle mister sin tro, og så sprer seg. Og nå... Og nå... Nå skal jeg ta troen fra deg også. Du spiller din tid. Jeg tror ikke på Gud. Jeg tror ikke på en skid.
har du sett? Nå skal du leve. Stop. Uh, uh, if you are too sensitive here, you know, the, the boy really survived uh, uh, the end, he's not drowned and so on. But what I want to say is this, uh, okay. uh, it, the, it's clear that Mark, the detective, is a true atheist while Johannes continues to rely on a big other when God failed to appear in his crisis, devil helped him, and so on and so on. So the first irony is that it's the serial killer who still, in a negative way, keeps the re- religious structure, while Mark is an atheist. However, Johannes is clearly wrong when he claims that when he was drowning the kid, God did not show up. Every authentic Christian will tell you, God did appear, two times even, when Mark offered himself to die instead of the kid, and when the girl, small kid's sister, refused to take revenge and stab Johannes. But which God appears here? It's not an all-powerful transcendent agent which ultimately takes care of us, but a Christ-like impotent witness offering compassion and solidarity, displaying pure goodness in the face of a meaningless, indifferent world. This is what I mean by my what I call my Christian atheism. One has to gather the strength to view the world with an inhuman eye, in all its cruel indifference and meaninglessness, with no big other as the ultimate guarantee of a higher order for meaning. Goodness can only emerge at this point. In other words, I think that to display this type of goodness, which is for me the ultimate Christian gesture that Mark did, you have to be an atheist. That's another story. Let me go on. At this razor's edge, the ultimate Mebius strip reversal takes place, accepting the brutal real in all its senseless indifference, Accepting it, we are pushed to full ethico-political engagement. Now I want to show you another clip where we have a similar reversal, which characterizes the dialectics of ethical substance. Let's imagine a substantial ritual of mourning which is gradually, in the process of secularization, emptied of its content. It appears as a nonsense. The miracle is that precisely as such as an empty ritual, it can remain operative in a more authentic way than ever. I will show you now the final two minutes of a movie which is, okay, modest, naive, but at some level I like it. And this one is more popular, I hope you've seen it. Taylor Sheridan's uh, Wind River. The story of Natalie Jensen, a Native American girl found raped and frozen in the middle of winter on a desolate Wyoming reservation. Corey, a hunter, film's hero, whose girl also disappeared three years ago, and Jane, a young FBI agent, try to unravel the mystery. So in the final scene, Corey goes to Hanson's house, where he finds a desperate Martin, 
Natalis, the raped and killed girl's father, sitting outside with a death face, a mix of blue and white paint on his face. And here we get the final dialogue. Let's just hope that it... Uh, okay, okay, it disappeared. Okay, <laughs> so mysterious. I'm sorry. Uh, okay, whatever. Uh, one, three, seven, and sorry. Flying on. And you see Weinstein, all the good guys are here. <laughs> Just a little bit. small point, but I like it. Read it, please. Listen carefully to the dialogue. It's much shorter than the other. Thing. Just need to sit here. 
not it's not part of some ridiculous immersion into a native culture and so on and so on. And that's the beauty of it. You know, what survives is a pure empty ritual. It's not legitimized in any deep faith and so on. It's just a kind of empty gesture. And as such, performed precisely by two modern subjects. It's more authentic than all, than all the authentic bullshit and so on. Now, I will conclude just to tell you my last part, but I've exploited so much your patience, was to be a brief reading of uh, Arrival, you know, Villeneuve, the one who did Blade Runner 49. Uh, what attracts me in that movie, these are all approaches to same ethical gesture. I hope I will not lose time that you've seen it. Uh, these heptapods arrive on Erdogan, so they are more holistic, they move in circular time, they know the past, the future, and so on. It's totally wrong to read the movie in this new age way. We humans are caught in our consecutive time, linear temporality, but the truly wise people, or humanoids, whatever they are, spiritual heptapods, move in a circular time, and so on, are more holistic, and so on. There is, if you read the movie in this way, playing with this shitty, holistic, critical version, you totally missed it. I think it's, uh, I say this with all the irony, it's absolutely on the side of us humans. You know why? You remember, if you've seen the movie, that at the end, when the two heroes asked the those aliens, why did they come here to save us? They say, because 300 years from now, we will need you. Now, this is a wonderful, enigmatic question. They know everything, the future and so on. Why would they need us to save them? It's not that we know something even more deep and so on. We know precisely how to reduce, how to ignore. The film ultimately celebrates precisely our non... And this this is the act of the heroine. What she does is something much more terrifying than a simple free act. You know, I'm not going to it, even in the movie, she makes a choice to have her child with her love, although she knows that uh, the child will die of leukemia, etc. The point is not, is this a good decision or not? The point is this one, that, uh, that uh, we learn through her that there is nonetheless a crack on this perfect determinism. When you know the future, what happens when you don't act accordingly? Because this is what those stupid squid like, I hate squids, I hate calamari and so on, what those heptapods are not able to do. They see the future and actualize it, do it. But the greatness is in our human finitude and limitation. Because this is the true act is the act of not only of freely choosing, but while accepting that the world is predetermined to act against this predestination and ruin everything, as it were. Ruin everything in the sense change the past. I think itself, I think that the correct materialist point 
here is not. Past is what it was, but we have a free space, we can change the future. I more and more think that the future is predetermined, but we can change the past. <laughs> Maybe in this circular way, change the future and so on and so on. So I will stop now. I exploited you way too much, but I in, I'm sorry for my confused talk. I just wanted to give you a hint in what direction me, together with my friends, we, the Stalinist, you know, the KGB units, they were usually in three Troika, you know, liquidators. We consider ourselves as our Lacanian Troika, and we are all working on this, uh, on this topic, especially on ontology. This is what I tried to develop in my, probably this is like clip, you know, it should be there, a minute of uh, promotion of publicity and so on. In my new, new book, which just came out, Incontinence of the Void, it's not obscene, it's Sam Beckett from whom I took this. Alenka Zupanchik in her wonderful book, which is doing very well, What is Sex? And then Mladen Dolar, the third member, he will now publish, we ironically call it his Ecree, over 500 pages, collected text with Bloomsbury as a big volume. So I'm not so much worried about all these polemics and so on. We are in the middle of trying to penetrate some new space. Maybe, even probably, we will fail. But I think that we live in an incredible time philosophically. You know, something new is emerging, really new. We don't yet know what. And I think we, with our orientation, are at least in the right space. Again, I'm sorry for talking so long and so on, you know, but uh, I love to be here. I'm just sorry I cannot be more active. Thanks very much for your patience. Now, you will organize democracy. I hope you did it in a Stalinist way that it will be just a show. You distributed the questions in advance. This, this time I'll warn you when I'm stopping talking and uh, not interrupt you. All right, so I think we have microphones. Is that right? Microphone holders. And if you raise your hands, I'll try and uh, get you to be recognized in order. Uh, but we are open for questions and slowly if we go for about half an hour does that sound about the right amount if but i already you know that's my hypocrisy i'm always tired i must open it but i feel i have to do it to you i like to speak too long so that then i can say hypocritically sorry we don't have time but i would love to have a long debate you know which is the usual leftist excuse i discover when leftists want a shorter debate they evoke a mythical cleaning lady, like, you know, we could go on talking, but that lady should go home and doesn't have time, and it's pure manipulation, they don't care about that, you know, so I hope there are no suffering cleaning ladies here, please, I, I volunteer to be the cleaning lady for the purpose. Are you transgender now, or whatever? <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. sorry, let's go. All right, here we have a question. Uh, down here in the mm. 
So, so Todd was joking with a few of us last night that there's going to be there's some spy here that's going to publish something like based on yesterday's uh, panel. Like Slavoj Žižek four comes out in favor of four of the plus. In um, favor. In favor of the. But now I think it's going to be the, it's going to be Slavoj Žižek ally. That's what's what the what's going to be. That was a joke. So you're supposed Sorry, to. What was the last phrase? But, I understand you. The second option. Slavoj Žižek ally. You're now that because you've embraced the plus. Okay. The serious question is well, while you were talking about, about about the plus and universality and uh, it was the first half of the talk when all the when the yeah, yeah, yeah. strip was still up you know I was thinking you know the, the, the I mean this is a stupid point but the, the plus right if you just if you view it from a canted angle or if you just turn yeah. it 45 degrees it, it becomes an X and so uh, with the with you know the ontology of the like Malcolm X and, and the sign of universality is the plus doing something different Different than X, or is the plus just the what X? Do you mean by F? Sorry. Uh, X, 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 X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, is, yeah. The, is the plus just the X turned forty-five degrees, and you know, as a sign of of the of universality? No, okay. I cannot go in detail into yeah. it now, but I I think that uh, it's not so much that it maybe it occupies the same place, but nonetheless, it's uh, the beautiful idea properly. Hegelian is this one that it's not X in the sense of pointing towards some in itself and so on that that it's a it's already here as a positive entity. X is maybe what Hegel calls true infinity. In Kantian reading, X would have means, or plus would have meant, we never can get it, there's all and so on. But the, the, maybe it's something like this. It's a very formal uh, homology that, that uh, Cantor did with infinity. That's why he has multiple infinities. That you count infinity as already counted and put it as a positive term, and then you can have multiple infinities and so on and so on. And this, I think, is is the big Hegelian move. It's not that no, we can go there, we can see the way things are in themselves and so on and so on. You know, it's my eternal formula. With Kant, X remains epistemological. It just means. There is an element which eludes us, we cannot get to nominal things in themselves and so on and so on. Hegelian solution is not, no, we can, I'm an absolute idealist, I, no. Hegelian solution is, what if this X is already ontological? What if there is an X which holds in reality itself? It's not just that we can... So the, the only thing that differs from Kant is, again, this shift from epistemological obstacle to ontological impossibility fact. I like this idea very much. And this is my highest speculation. I'm not sure I will publish it because I don't want to... So I'm trying to talk with my quantum physics friends. I want, don't want to be caught with my pants down uh, 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 bluffing there. No. That uh, all, like, extremely interesting things concerning this topic, from what I can understand with my limited knowledge, are 
happening in quantum physics just now. This theory, it got Nobel Prize even now for gravitational waves and so on and so on, you know, all that stuff. Where it is precisely the basic operation, what attracts me so much to quantum physics is precisely that it does the same thing. Here, as I developed in my book, for example, uh, 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 Bohr uh, criticized Heisenberg. For Heisenberg, he was too Kantian. His uncertainty principle was still epistemological. We cannot measure both at the same time uh, velocity and position and so on and so on. Bohr goes much further here, no? Like, uh, X is part of reality uh, indeterminacy is in reality itself. And uh, the difficult point is how to read this without uh, how to read this without falling into idealism. If you allow me, just briefly, because I used it in one of my books, but I hope you don't know all of it. It's the best story that I know of this. I took it to some, in some, from some stupid introduction to philosophy. That's for me true materialism. Uh, uh, the idea is this one, that to understand the consequences of ontological, of quantum physics, one should do it via a detour through video games. You know, in video games, reality is not fully constructed. Like, if you are in a game and you see a forest in the background, that forest is not fully programmed because it's not part of the rules of the game that you can go there and check it, you know. So, the programmer said, fuck off, why should I lose time? Pro or, there is a house. If it's not part of the game that you can enter the house, why lose precious time programming the interior of a house? So, the idea is this one, I love it, that we in quantum physics, when we see this ontological incompleteness of reality, we caught God with his pants down. God thought something like, listen, humans are too stupid to move beyond atoms. So why should I lose time programming my... Let's leave it indeterminate. But ha, 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 we came there. We caught him. And this is the beautiful theory. So the point is how to think this incompleteness without God. Or how to have, this is what I found so fascinating with quantum physics, this idea of ontological cheating. You can borrow for the future, something can come into existence, but before the big other notices it, before it's registered, it, it disappears. I still think, I'm here very old-fashioned, that quantum physics in the age of Copenhagen orthodoxy, avoided these problems. But now they are coming back and I expect a lot from what is happening there. But again, it's the same topic, the status of ontological opening indeterminacy and so on and so on. And here I think we should move beyond Kant's transcendentalism. Sorry, I was too long. I will be shorter from now. Over here. I would like to do a New Age comment on that child 
maybe more than all our fabricated wisdom, there is a wisdom in that innocent sound of a child, you know. <laughs> Sorry, please. No, I'm, glad, I'm actually glad you said that because that might lead us in the direction of my question. Yeah. So I um, appreciated your uh, theoretical points at the beginning very much, and um, I, my question is about the examples that you used, and particularly the clips, and not so much kind of a challenge in interpretation, but how you would respond to an alternative um, interpretation of the, all of the clips that you showed. Yes. So the moment at the end of Wind River, what unites them isn't just sort of the empty ritual, but also the grief and parental yeah. grief. And it seems to me that that's also um, obviously a part of arrival in terms of the embracing of actual parental grief, um, her choice to have the child, even though she knows that she will die. Um, and then it also, uh, the other clip you showed, centers around the loss of children as a way to undermine faith. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to a little, uh, speak a little bit to whether or not that sort of uh, grief is also providing sort of a moment in being that you could interpret somehow within the framework you're talking about. Uh, it's a very nice complex question. I'm now too perplexed, stupid to answer it fully. All I will say is something very problematic, and I wonder if you would agree. I think that nonetheless, sorry, I forgot her name, the nice actor, but how she's called in the movie, the lady, the mother in arrival, that in some sense she made a wrong decision. It was almost a criminal decision. Why? Why? I mean, it's very common sense what I'm saying, but I know, you know that your future uh, child, daughter in that case, will only suffer, have a short, meaningless life. Why? Isn't there a terrible narcissism in it? Like, she wants her happy a couple of years of motherhood and fuck off if, if the daughter will die. In a, so it's almost a kind of ontological catastrophe. But the, the catch is that in this ontological catastrophe, she falls follows he follows this holistic prediction like you will get why why doesn't the true act would have been to say no let no let's not do it precisely and that's the big that's the big enigma which is missing maybe in the movie which incidentally it's interesting to know it's based on a short story written by Chunk, a Chinese guy who lives here in the United States and he's an extraordinary guy. He writes just one short story every five years or what. It was so uh, 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 no, I agree with you. This uh, uh, topic of the uh, loss of uh, children and so on, I think we can even connect it with uh, because it's the same director, Villeneuve, no? Here, it's incredible. I don't know where do you stand. Almost all of my friends, with the exception of, 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 of miserable creatures like Todd and so on, no? <laughs> all of my friends are mostly against the film, claiming it's falsely romantic and so on, whatever. I'm talking about Blade Runner 49. But you have the same grieving because at the end, surprisingly, uh, 
it's, it's not the usual Hollywood formula, which is disgusting, of the creation of the couple, is that father sacrifices himself to enable child, um, the younger, for example, a disgusting example, I know, uh, Armageddon. Bruce Willis basically kills, it's really not a film about an asteroid, it's a film about Bruce Willis who doesn't want to lose Liv Tyler, and that's why he hates Ben Affleck, the dem- but at the end he disappears, literally, to enable, but the, the mystery of Blade Runner is that at the end it's the opposite, it's the couple of father-daughter created and her potential partner, whatever, he sacrificed, and the, there are so many interesting things I want to do. I think it's maybe the best film of what I call post-human capitalism. For example, I love that opposition between Wallace, played by Jared Leto, you know, the absolute corporate capitalist who is ready to risk everything just to corporate and, uh, 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 that, uh, I forgot the name, strange one, played by Robin Wright. She is the representative of state apparatuses. She is the apartheid girl. She said, no, they should not mix the races and so on and so on. Uh, so this, uh, this secondary antagonism, which is very important, then At some point, the film is almost Lacanian in a too vulgar, direct way. Like that scene of sex, where you have the real flesh and blood replicant, as it were, colonized by that hologram girl, and so on. And I wonder... What is wrong with the film, in spite of its many uh, wonderful moments, uh, is that it doesn't address the real question. It's too humanist, you know, in what sense. The problem is the problem androids, replicants, should we accept them? Can they become human? Should we recognize them? But the film doesn't dwell into that. What if something really new is emerging there? What if, in a way, with replicants feeling with that kind of awareness, we humans are no longer human, and so on. So, but nonetheless, there is so much to say uh, to say about this. So, uh, but going back to your question again, I think that that. Uh, I like this reversal because the usual mythological idea is you grieve for your lost parents and so on. What does this mean to grieve for uh, to grieve for children and so on? And I absolutely agree with you. But okay, I couldn't go into all of it. But would you agree with my central point, which is that one should not read in uh, Wind River the final ritual as this patronizing attitude out of respect. They are both modern subjects. It's an empty ritual and as such totally authentic. And that's also my personal experience. When I met some Native Americans, they are geniuses in Missoula, Montana. They told me if they hate something much more than white races, if those white tourists who come, we want to learn your organic uh, holistic ways and so on and so on, you know. And they are proud to say, no, we can be decadent, we can be corrupted, you know. Like, they find it much more liberating to be 
to be designated as corrupted than to be celebrated with some holistic bullshit and so on. You know who are, sorry to improvise, you know who are my favorite guys here? When I was in New Zealand, I met some artists there. Before we learned, got to know each other, they gave me the bullshit, you know. We went to a mountain, we listened to a mountain, and then mountain tells us how to paint it, all the bullshit. Then when we become friends, they told me the story, because uh, they have uh, two agents in this artistic group in New York, and they let them know what is fashionable. For example, some 15 years ago, the first fashionable thing was to mix sacred topic with eroticism. You know, a temple in the ruins, a naked woman there, and so on. And then, you know, all of a sudden, when they learned this, the mountain was telling them to, to paint this. But I totally agree with them. It's so, maybe in this way, they were more authentic there. Because what we underestimate in this vision of authenticity is the pragmatic, even manipulative spirit of so-called authentic cultures. Sorry, just this, I have my favorite example, I use it in one of my books. Did you see that wonderful Inuit movie, uh, uh, Fast Runner? You think it's very good, a Canadian movie made by Inuit, and I'm against political correctness, I'm the first guy to say a third world movie, fuck it, boring like hell. But that one is really a good one. But you know what happened? It tells an ancient story, it retells an ancient Inuit myth of conflict between the two tribes. And then there was, they always are, a politically correct, multiculturalist, idiot Canadian journalist who attacked the movie as too commercially oriented. The, 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 the original Inuit myth, in the original myth, the two groups, sub-tribes, whatever, groups in conflict kill each other, it's a catastrophe. Here, it's a much more modest. They just expel, throw out from their group two bad guys, and it, it's more or less them a happy ending. And she said, oh, you did this to commercialize it, to, you know, to retell it so that it would fit our times. And he got an answer of a lifetime from the director, who called, told him, no, your obsession with original authentic version is European modernist colonial. It's part of our tradition to retell, retell the story different in every new circumstances. You know, like, we should, the first, we should break out of this duality. Are we modern, manipulative, or are we authentic? Our notion of authenticity is absolutely part of our modernity. And the nice thing is to discover how, in a charming sense, how cunning, how cunning, tricky, so-called primitives can be. You know, I didn't answer your question, sorry. <laughs> but, but I agree with you. I mean, with that uh, 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 morning for children. <laughs> Slowly, until another question is asked, maybe I can uh, use chairs, privilege or not privilege, to, to ask a question. Um, May, uh, uh, I wonder if you because what? he wrote a book where he has one, you, Adrian, where you have one chapter attacking me, curse on you, you will burn in hell for that, you know. <laughs> 
my God, my God. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking when we, the people will take over, no? You will have in Gulag wonderful evenings, writing confessions, you know, like already my parents were educating me to hate materialists, true materialists. No, seriously, I appreciate him uh, very much because I like people who are close to me, but we fight all the time. That's the only way to do it, you know. I, for example, many books that friends submit me to be published in some series where I have a certain control, not a lot, as you know, uh, I always tell them, add a criticism of me. Because there is something absolutely ridiculous when somebody just praises you. And even with my best friends, people don't get it. For example, Alenka Zupantis has, in a polite way, women know how to do this, in a polite way has ferocious attacks on me all the time. So just, I... Yeah, get it up front with no yeah, but you will also end like Bukhari, yeah. you know. <laughs> you don't, for this bullshit, you don't need me. Forget about that guy. Let, let me ask a question about Al Jazeera to go over the gap. Um, at you the, see, at the, he doesn't give you a word, but he wants to have it. Yeah, yeah. At, at the end of the ISA essay, Al Jazeera yeah. talks about freedom, and he says, the ultimate proof of my freedom is giving up my freedom in the service of God or the state. Um, That's the same. Do you, yeah. Sorry, I forgot he, it. He, uh, do you, in that... Uh, statement, do you want to distinguish an objective and a subjective sense of freedom, or would you want to... No, I would first ask Altisher, sorry to interrupt you, but could you explain us what does he mean by freedom? Ideological freedom or some... Well, he, it, I mean, that's the $64 question. I think he means... You are real. So I, think he, <laughs> I think he means real freedom. He doesn't just mean okay, an ideological... That's my or, eternal problem with Altisher. That yeah. in his general edifice, structuralist, where is there the ontological space for this freedom? Yeah, I mean, he doesn't make the distinction for him. Ideology is at the level of practice, not at the level of mystifying ideas. So for him, it's always material, right? It's never this purely subjective as opposed to objective. And but the, what is then purely You know, sorry, you yeah, know, where I had the problem with him, for yeah. example, his theory of interpolation. My God, you provided the best criticism here. That is simply wrong, not in a vulgar empirical sense, but it's, that it's not true that recognition goes like this. Hey, you, and I turn around, yes, I'm caught. That it's always this moment of anxiety, of why me, and their subjectivity enters. And that's the space of freedom for me. But the question is, is, is the answer a material answer, or is it merely an illusion of freedom? And I think Althusser's radical move was to say it's material. That, uh, I mean, this was his... Answer. Here we enter another problem. Yeah. Again, Navin Dollar developed this nice 
previously years ago. I always find it so suspicious, uh, deserves emphasizing of how ideological apparatuses are material and so on. No, the big other is not material. What about ideological big others, like, for example, religion, communism? They are the substance of our being. You are ready to sacrifice your life for them, but in some sense, symbolic apparatus is precisely not material. So, I uh, think I always found yeah. suspicious his insistence, as if materialism means it has to exist, university, police, or whatever, and so on and so on. Yeah. I mean, the very, the really difficult thing is to be let's call it like this, materialist of the immaterial. <laughs> and I think that this is neglected, which is why, again, another theory, you know, when he, would you agree with this supplement of mine, when he quotes Pascal, you know, you, again, the force of materiality, you don't believe, act as if you believe, and belief will come by itself. <laughs> I'm tempted to propose almost the opposite reading. That, uh, that, uh, like, this is the story that I tell you in one of my books. Let's say you really believe in God, and you are all the time obsessed by it. It's horrible. My solution would be, act as if you believe, uh, externalize your belief in rituals, and you don't have to believe. You can be free, you can think about sex, whatever you know. Uh, and this is basically, that's how I read it, Hegel's theory of marriage. You are in love, it's horrible, marry the girl or the boy. You will see she smells bad or she dirty socks and so on, and you will be cured. You know, I like this idea that a ritual also gives you a, a minimal distance. Why does Althusser think that, why does he read Pascal in this way that you really have to believe? What interests me much more is beliefs which are socially operative, my good friend, you may know Robert Fowler, the Austrian, developed this, which are operative, but are always beliefs of others. There is nobody who in the first person believes, but beliefs function like. I think a lot of, but this is maybe even the, the basic way uh, beliefs function today. Nobody believes in anything. You always, if at all, you need a big other or even some figure or small other, like, you know, my usual stories, like, I don't know. Uh, you ask parents, why do you pretend religious rituals? They said not to offend our children, our children need it, and so on and so on. Beliefs are, beliefs are here always displaced, and, uh, and uh, I think that it's not the right way to... Uh, like, okay, I put it in this way. I think that this displacement is part of language as such. That's why, you know, I often use this example, these elementary forms, like we shake hands and I say, oh, nice to see you, how are you? When we both know that I am cursing myself not seeing you uh, one minute before to cross to the other side of the street and that I don't care if you are dying of cancer. But nonetheless, although we both... Not only this, I'm ready to go a step further. If, if you would have suspected that I really mean it, you would have the full right to tell me it's none of your business how I feel and so on. But nonetheless, there are innovations here. 
We have a kind of a paradox of sincere lying or even sincere hypocrisy. And all of this, Althusser could have developed it, but did not. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, no, I mean, I think you know, that's why I was asking. It said that, that you didn't. Yeah. Uh, when people ask me, are you under exceptional circumstances for torture? Yeah. I say yes, and I usually give as an example you. Because you had that wonderful criticism in your fetish book of Altisser, and why didn't you develop that further? Mm-hmm. I would conditionally allow torturing you, to force you to finish that book. It would be really important. Uh, I, I think this question requires that I ask somebody else to ask a question <laughs> at this stage. Uh, more questions? Is there a... Uh, sorry, yes, sorry, sorry. Sorry, I noticed it's my spontaneous bourgeois that I'm more directed towards the right and I'm neglecting the left. I noticed it. Please. Okay, I'll speak. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I want to return to your statements about the last scene in the Danish film. I can't remember the name of the film. It's Flaschenpost in Danish, but it's a beautiful Cheskartonian translation in English, A Conspiracy of Faith. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, you can download the Pirate Bay, you get all of them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll pay four dollars. I'll do whatever. Thank you. Um, I want to make sure I understood you correctly, but then I want to ask a question about it. I, I think you said something like the true act or the best act of goodness comes when you no longer believe in a God. God, perhaps a God that's some kind of mm. absolute controlling power mm. as an atheist, but then nonetheless you perform this act of goodness. Yeah. And I have two questions about that. Yeah. One, what do you mean by goodness? And two, is there a relationship with courage there? And what might courage kind of good courage point? might that be? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, basically I gave another version of my formula which I took from Agamben, courage of hopelessness and so on, you know. No, what I mean, it's very naive. I know I don't elaborate this notion, but what I'm, I am tempted following Badiou here to rehabilitate goodness because I'm so tired of this fashionable pseudo-Nietzschean way of claiming goodness is bourgeois, beyond good and evil. Most of the people that I know who are beyond good and evil are beneath good and evil. They haven't even progressed to that area and so on. By 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 uh, goodness I mean it in a very Kantian way, a pure form of empathy taking care of others where there is no narcissistic calculation and so on. I leave it consciously open because I don't want to commit myself then to some interpretation because things get here very paradoxical. If you are a philosopher you must know it even with Kant himself because Kant always suspects pure goodness which must be done just for the sake of duty. No, He always suspects that there are hidden what Kant calls pathological, which simply means empirical motivations. Like, you pretend to be good, but it's to impress the others or whatever, to feel good. But I think that there is a much more refined logic at work there. Uh, What Kant is really afraid is 
because encountering goodness is like encountering something nominal which doesn't fit our reality in our reality. So I think that Kant precisely wants this suspicion of, but we cannot ever be sure, maybe it was just that I did it for some narcissistic satisfaction and so on, not to confront the trauma of an ethical act. And so, uh, 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 my, my, it's a very good question that you ask because in some sense I develop this widely. Goodness comes strangely close to what Kant calls, but then abandons the term uh, radical evil. Evil which is also, and that's the big enigma that Kant is trying to escape. Is there radical evil? He, you know, in his wonderful the, the, the late text, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, he first gives some hints that radical evil is, if not possible, at least imaginable. Radical even in the sense that you are evil, not for any profit, not, but simply for the sake of it. Which, for Kant, then comes in a formal way, strangely close to, 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 to his definition of good act, of doing your duty. So can you elevate evil into your duty? Then Kant sees the problem. He steps back and reinterprets quickly, like secretly, radical evil as just an eternal egotist tendency towards evil. He doesn't want to allow for that. So I find this very nice reading where Kant precisely is afraid of the consequences of his own discovery. You know, this is Kant at his best. He says something and then he does all possible things to, to blur it and so on and so on. But I still think that, that Kant was, at, uh, that Lacan was right when he says in, at the beginning of his writing, Kant avec Sad, he says something very important. He says that in the history of ideas, if we want to look for the starting point out of which later psychoanalysis developed, it's Kant. It's not all that irrational philosophy of the unconscious, whatever. Uh, it's Kant. It's Kant. So the only thing that I can do now quickly to answer you is that uh, goodness is a... Again, again, one of those plus mysterious categories and so on. It's, uh, it's goodness is for me some kind of a, uh, the ultimate free act, but free act in the sense of it has to be, it has to be groundless in some sense. And only the most radical philosophers have seen that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that would be for me, of course, the definition of courage, that you can stand on your own without relying on any figure of the big other. And here, Kant is already, as I developed a couple of lines, much more radical than people usually take it. When he has this motto of unconditional duty, you know, like, du kannst, then du sollst. You can do it because you 
have to do it. His point is not there is no excuse for not doing your duty. Like, you cannot say, I know this is my duty, but sorry, I'm in a hurry, I have some friends, whatever. There is also no excuse to do your duty. You know, it's very clear that for Kant, for example, sorry, you are my friend, I cannot say if I have to do as my duty something that nonetheless as a collateral damage, as they say now, hurts you to say, sorry guy, but I cannot help it, it's my duty to do it. No, I am also fully responsible for doing my duty. I cannot put the blame onto others. This is where, for example, I claim, Although I appreciate her very much, wouldn't you agree? Hannah Arendt was wrong when he took she took seriously Eichmann's defense that I was just a perfect Kantian. No, a perfect because Eichmann precisely projected the source of authority onto Hitler. I was just following orders and so on. No, a Kantian cannot ever say that. You are fully responsible for what you assume as the order. So Eichmann simply, he was absolutely not <laughs> a Kantian ethical, ethical figure and so on. We have, I think, time for two more questions, and I think there's a question... How does this guy here. count? Why two and so on? I don't get it. Here on the right. Ah, now you show me your political cards. I'm doing my duty. Okay, that's <laughs> Here. Hello. So talking about duty, uh, um, I'm still elaborating the question, so I'm sorry if it's a little confusing. Yeah. But uh, I'm thinking of uh, what you said about uh, philosophy today being at a point of a breakthrough, maybe. And I saw where you pointed that in the client's bottle, where you think that philosophers maybe today in terms of vision... And uh, obviously, I haven't read Ruda's book. It's not out yet. No, but I was thinking, even a manuscript. I quoted right. So, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how he's um, talking about Plato's cave. Obviously, that's one of the most commonly cited uh, myths in philosophy. But uh, there seems to be an interesting repression because I can't help but thinking that uh, when the philosopher comes back to the cave, and I'm thinking about imposing freedom that you said, mm -hmm. they kill him. Nobody ever writes about this, but when the philosopher goes back to the cave yeah. and wants to liberate the man, they kill the philosopher. They don't want to be liberated. So what's the duty of the philosopher? What's, why do you think we're at a breakthrough today? Maybe no, I'm a little bit I'm more... I think we are at the breakthrough at this level. My point with cave would just be that the task of philosophy is not just go out of the cave. But to say, do you see that snout? Do you see how you are part of the cave? Do you, you know, just to, you should go, not go out, break through, but back into that protuberance. You know, that, 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 that philosopher shouldn't be a naive realist. And this brings me back to what you are asking. My big problem, I try to 
to deal with it in my mega, not in a qualitative but quantitative mega fed book, less than nothing. That I was, I had a post-coital depression after finishing it, so I wrote another book, just 500 pages for uh, uh, what's one called the uh, 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 absolute recoil. After that, it's just dragging on. It was uh, uh, disparities, then it's now uh, incontinence of the void, and now it's a new one, almost finished. Because my big philosophical problem is this one. We have the ultimate transcendental approach, Heidegger and even most of Marxists and so on. Their form of transcendentalism is historical practice. They say all our, the way we relate to the world is always from George Lukacs in his history of class consciousness developed this. You know, it's part of our concrete historical practice and so on. So is this the ultimate horizon? How to move out of this transcendental approach without regressing into any kind of naive realism? where into what I think at least object-oriented ontology falls. Like, no, we are just one among the objects and so on. And then Graham Harman reproaches me for, I think you still think that subject is some exceptional being. And saying, no, maybe, first, I don't think subject is a mega actant. I think the basic feature of subjectivity, Hegel saw this very clearly, is precisely a certain type of passivity withdrawal and so on. The problem is not that we as subjects are omnipotent. Already in Kant, if you read Kant in a refined way, Adorno wrote about it, you can see how his idea of transcendental constitution, we as transcendental subjects constitute reality, is really a form of impotence. It means transcendental categories are our Plato's, Plato's cave. You know, so again, uh, my point is how to break out of this, I think, debilitating false alternative. And that's what I, where I'm still working on. And that's what I designated as the challenge of today. That transcend deconstructionism was for me still transcendental. You find in Derrida, whom I greatly appreciate, wonderful oscillations like Derrida's basic approach is transcendental. Look at the condition of possibility, what is, what, uh, for example, the whole idea of writing is transcendental. Writing means that what appears to be an obstacle is really a condition of possibility, and so on. But at the same time, often Derrida regresses or turns to quite naive realism. For example, in his reactions to some, maybe you know them, biological writings, he starts to say, can't we talk already about architraise, difference in biology, and so on and so on. So that's to find a way out of this debilitating deadlock. Naive realism or still transcendentalism. That's for me the task today. So I think a question maybe in the center to end up. Uh, thank you. Um, I would like to just uh, look at the, the, one of the very last things that you said uh, when you said, you know, that the, the, the future may be determined, but the past, you know, is mm -hmm. something that we can perhaps still look at. 
Um, I'm thinking about the, the notion of, well, at least one point in Lacan where he... Uh, I suppose, maybe pausing around that notion of determinacy with regard to the Analysand, and of course... Sorry, about, I didn't get sorry, about uh, a point in Lacan when he talks about, or perhaps avoids talking about determinacy um, yeah. from the point of view of the Analysand, and he speaks, of course, about the future anterior, the, yeah. The, yeah. the what I will have been yeah. for what I am in the process of becoming. So I wondered if maybe you wouldn't mind saying something about that, but also uh, with, a, with a view to your, your thoughts on determinacy and freedom but also I wonder if you have seen the film uh, The Brand New Testament The Belgian The Brand New Testament from 2015 it's a Belgian film no sorry I didn't I think you'll like it it's, it's about God and he, he basically has designed the human race as a kind of game for himself he's a sadist and uh, essentially he plays with, with people and his daughter who's the sister of Jesus she finds out about this and she goes down to earth where she recruits new apostles and disciples and writes a brand new testament uh, this drives God mad he comes to earth, he finds her but actually he's mistaken for a homeless person by a priest who tries to help him and the priest says I'm doing this because you know God said love thy neighbour and God says I never said that okay. uh, no no I, I love all these stories I have a whole list of them maybe I will write more about it because for example do you know that there is a wonderful gnostic reading of Christ's sacrifice is that God sees admits how he screwed up things with creating the shitty world we are in and that he you know in that Yakuza way you know when you offend your friend you cut off a finger and give it to him that the death of Christ is God's apology to us humans sorry that I screwed your life so much and so on and, and there are I also quote and he's still very famous in, in Norway I discovered that it's a strange name I cannot pronounce correctly, a Norwegian Protestant theologist who had this idea that the experience of Job is really the brutal primitiveness of God. And that's why I like uh, Protestantism, because beneath this notion of predetermination, it's precisely what you said, God is playing games. What does it mean, predetermination? That God was like, okay, you are, you are redeemed, you are saved, what, I will simply decide it in advance, and so on, and so on, so, uh, uh, no, uh, so that I don't get lost. My basic... Uh, reply about all this topic, future, past, and so on. I know all these games about uh, future anterior and so on, but what I like is this idea that the moment you just want to change future, you leave past the way it is. It's a very simple idea. You leave past the way it is, which means you accept we have, you know, this is so-called rational approach. Let's look at the situation. This is determined, but there is op opening here. We have a choice here. We have a choice there, and so on and so on. That That's not enough. If you really want to open the future, the first thing to do is to change the past. Of course, I'm not talking magic going into the past and so on. I'm talking about symbolically rewriting the past. And here, I think that much more than Marx, Hegel is the true philosopher of an open future. 
You know, I of course disagree with Robert Pippin, but he's a good Hegelian and he made, you know, when Hegel is usually accused of being kind of a neoconservative, trying to resolve contradictions of emerging bourgeois society through uh, this uh, corporate state that he portrays in his philosophy of right. But uh, uh, this is really a move of genius. Pippin asks a very simple question, I forgot where. But my God, did we forget what Hegel says at the end of the introduction to his philosophy of life that you know? Philosophy is like the all of Minerva. It takes off. That is to say, philosophy can only present, deploy, articulate the conceptual structure of he says Hegel, even like he, philosopher can only paint gray on gray. Philosophy can only present the conceptual structure of a mode of life which is already in disintegration. Yeah, but you know what this means? First, this means that if Hegel was not a total idiot and didn't know what he was doing, that his philosophy of right should be read in this way, not as even many people like Brandom read it as a kind of a model for future, but he's describing something whose time has already passed, and Hegel was fully aware of this. He wasn't even very revolutionary, but he was terribly aware of the opening of the future. For example, you know what Hegel's last written text was? His comment on the British Reform Bill, which extended a little bit in 1931 to when the voting right a little bit more egalitarian, and Hegel was in a total panic, like, no, that's the beginning of chaos, and so on and so on. So Hegel was here simply caught in a weird predicament, but he saw this, that the only way to open the future is not to dream about the future, because if you don't rewrite the past, then every dreaming about the future remains determined by the past constellation, and so on and so on. So here I go, nonetheless, a step further. We all know that usual futur anterior story, and so on, and it can be even given much more <coughs> refined twists. How? When I look upon myself here and now, it's always a minimum of future anterior, no? I never see myself directly. I always see myself from this minimal detour and so on and so on. Uh, but uh, what interests me here, it would be this you don't find in Hegel. Maybe to introduce Benjamin here, you know, Walter Benjamin, and to claim that the first path towards the future is to unearth, unearth the deadlocks, openings which are abandoned in the past. Like, rewrite the past so that it's no longer the closed past, but an, an open past. Hegel was not what he's usually reproached to be a conservative Nietzsche reproached this to Hegel. That Hegel always tells the story from the standpoint of winners, you know. Like one victory, another victory, and just the succession of epoch. No, I think Hegel is, Hegel is much more subtle here. Hegel is fully aware of this paradoxical dialectics that what is appears in a certain epoch as left behind. No place for it. 
just remainder of the past, can all of a sudden, through this rewriting of the past, turn out to be the very model of the future. That's why, to give you an idea, it's madness. I'm now reading a book about Tuaregs. You know her, those crazy, there are two millions of them in the very heart of Africa, desert. They have a very tragic life. They are now uh, infested by Islam fundamentalism and so on. And one shouldn't also idealize them. Like they're all terrible races. They don't consider blacks fully human and so on. Just good as slaves. But nonetheless, how, you know, the most probable uh, theory, uh, etymology of their name, Tuareg, is those who are left behind by God. And I like this point that those who are left behind all of a sudden become the site of the hope for for the for the future. You know, sorry, too tired to say anything. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I love this city, and we are here, this will be the futur anterior. This city, I think, because of all the military corporations here, isn't it that you will soon get a visit by our good friend Kim, no? Aren't you on the list of, you know? So maybe we should already look at us as from the future anterior of our death, you know, we are living death and so on. I love the city, thank you very much. Thank you.